0: All right, welcome back. So and happy 2021. Um, For this week's topic, we're in Unit 5, which is a whole bunch of information surrounding the big, big, big topic of cognition. For this week, though, we're getting into the details about memory. (coughs) Now, I'm going to break down memory into three different main types um, within this information processing model. Before I get there, though, I really want you, and I'm stressing this in class, outside of class, as you're studying, reviewing, um, coming back to this material before the AP exam, is coming up with your own definition of memory. What does it mean to you? Uh, We will learn in class why it's so incredibly important to come up with those meaningful definitions because it helps us remember things more. It's a specific type of encoding, actually. Um, And I'm definitely, you know, challenging you all. I'm going to give you a definition of memory. But is this definition just going to be a memorization of words that don't really mean much to you? Or are you going to challenge yourself and come up with that authentic definition of memory that has meaning to you? Um, That's really, 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 really important. And it's important for the rest of your life as a learner, um, because making meaning out of information is how we're able to pull out that information in the future. And that is true memory. So before I get into this information processing model, what's really important is knowing there are two broad types of memory. Um, and my definition of memory <coughs> is its, its ability to store and retrieve information. Now, the words store and retrieve to you all probably don't mean too much at the moment that you're listening to this, potentially. But if you're able to take my definition or even take Google's definition, or one of the definitions that the AP um, presenters in one of those AP videos did. Coming up with that own definition of, you know, the ability to store and retrieve information is my definition of memory, but what's yours? Um, You can jot this down, make sense of it, but I'm challenging you as we go through this week, how are you going to change and adapt this definition to make sense to you? So the two broad types of memory are retrospective memory and prospective memory fairly simple. If you know um, prefixes, you're going you're to have these um, definitions down pretty quickly. Um, when we think of prospective memory, it's being able to remember things that are happening in the future. Um, but the reason why I have to write to-do lists is because my prospective memory isn't too awesome. My mind is cluttered constantly. So I'm a big to-do list writer, and I'm sure a lot of you can relate. So an example that we posed in class was being able to remember remember to buy maple syrup on the way home this afternoon, if that's what your parents told you to do. <coughs> for example, my prospective memory today is being able to remember to go on a bike ride this afternoon because if I get into the depths of grading, doing the other things on my to-do list, I will not remember to take a bike ride, which I need to. Um, one of my goals this year is to go outside more and take some time for myself. On the opposite end, retrospective memory is remembering past events and previously learned skills and information. So (coughs) we'll talk about different types of memory within retrospective memory, so memories from the past, We'll break that down into more detail, but the broad definition slash example of retrospective memory is being able to remember, oh, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? Or if you had breakfast at all, did you have coffee this morning? (coughs) What time did you wake up this morning? So on and so forth. Those are just random tidbits, memories that you have from the past. Now, with memory, the basic concept of it is, it's not like a video or tape recorder. Um, we personally construct our memories, and no two people remember something, whether it's an event, some random thing, the same way. And when we think of you know memory from the past, it's reconstructive, it's not reproductive. You're not reproducing, everything that happened from the past you're reconstructing and coming up with you know okay this happened this happened this happened and this is how i made sense of it your memory of one particular event will differ from my memory of the same event one thing i like to use as an analogy with memory with the basic concept is a snowflake you know no two snowflakes are the same (coughs) now why are why is memory reconstructive and not reproductive? Well, a bunch of different reasons. And very broadly, memory is greatly influenced by several different things, including actual memories, your own beliefs, particular emotions, which then can cloud perceptions, um, also schemas. We talked about schemas, which are kind of that individual personal concept of a particular thing Um, so my schema of a dog growing up would have been labradors because my family had labs yours might be a golden retriever or a pit bull or i can't german shepherds why because your concept slash memory of dogs was influenced by your past and your schema of what your family had as dogs Now, (coughs) we talked about some different things in class, like kind of proving the point of memory is reconstructive and reproductive, and we'll continue to come back to it. We talked about um, memories and how people remembered the Challenger explosion in the 1980s. Um, We also, what I did was presented a list of 14 words um, and how I listed a bunch of words and asked you at the end... um, you know, to write down what you remember. A great portion of you wrote the word sleep, but there was no word that I presented of sleep. So the big question I posed was, why did you recall or even remember why was in your memory the word sleep? Well, you were primed to put that there. And later on in this podcast episode, we're going to define what priming is. Um, the big thing with memory though is when we think about (coughs) you know memory in a particular model we're going to associate associate it as the information processing model and we're breaking it down in three parts now it's important that you are able to differentiate this information processing model with a particular model within one of these steps. And we'll break that down later on in this episode. But the broad information processing model has three steps, encoding, storage, and then retrieval. And in class, what I did was used an analogy of different parts of a computer. Now, this is a way dated computer, we have different types of computers slash laptops slash Chromebooks today. Um, But it's it's an old computer. Um, And when we think of (coughs) these three parts, I want you to use or if you can find something else that makes more sense to you, you can use the different parts of a computer or a different analogy to benefit your own learning. But to break it down, when we think about encoding, we're thinking about how are we getting that information into the brain. And there are different types of encoding, which I'll get into in a moment. And when we think of encoding, I want you to think of, you know, the typing, um, the keyboard, okay, pressing each individual key on your keyboard will get that information onto the screen on the computer. The next step is storage. With storage, you are retaining or storing the info. That is that computer part of um, an entire computer. So it's like that, the hard drive of the computer if you have one of those in your homes. If not, Google it. Um, yeah, they are they're before most of your all's time. Um, and then the last part is retrieval. And that's getting that information out later and using it. <coughs> when we think of an analogy, what textbooks use all the time is the actual screen. The screen presents that information. It shows what you have typed. It can pull up particular files. You can Google search things and it'll release or you know get, get that information out to you. And that's what retrieval is. Um, taking out that information from your memory, which is in your brain, um, and using it later. All right. So this first section of the podcast is going to get into different types of encoding. And the remember the big definition of encoding is how are we getting this information into the brain? And the first or the two types are automatic and then effortful. Hopefully by, you know, using context clues here, effortful takes a little more effort. Um, but is harder to do. Um, to actually effortly encode something, it takes time, it takes repetition, and it takes focus. Um, automatic encoding is, in essence, automatic. You're not always conscious about encoding something that is through automatic encoding. Um, so we're doing automatic encoding. It could also be re- referred to as processing without awareness. It's done automatically. It's not usually done on the conscious level. And when we think of automatic encoding, when we think back to our bio unit, but also sensation and perception, we called and talked about parallel processing. So there are different areas of our brain that are processing many different tidbits of information, stimuli, so on and so forth, at the same time or parallel Um, so you're taking in the smell you're taking in the sight you're taking in random other things multiple different things that you're seeing at the same time which leads to automatic encoding now something that I posed in class was (coughs) well which is it Um, In the spelling of the Bernstein bears, Uh, the majority of us believe that it was Bernstein, which is the last few letters is S-T-E-I-N, but in actuality, it's Bernstein bears, S-T-A-I-N. Now, the big question is, well, why would we have fallen for it? And part of it is due to automatic encoding. Now, we're gonna talk about this effect later on with thinking, Um, we'll get there in this unit because it's a couple of things. We have automatic encoding going on, not necessarily reading the entire word, we're just taking it in and assuming that it's Bernstein bears, the E-I-N, when in actuality, it's A-I-N. I also showed a list of, oh, how many of those are there, 15 pennies, Um, and asked you which of the pennies is the right one. It's pretty hard to detect when you're actually trying to effortfully figure it out. And the reason why it's so hard was that we, over time, have automatically encoded what a penny looks like, the shape, the color, who was on it, the words potentially that are on it, but we haven't necessarily effortfully encoded exactly how a penny looks. And so it's tricky to retrieve out of our minds then, okay, well, which penny is it when you're asked? So when we think of effortful encoding, and it could also be referred to as effortful processing, it requires conscious effort. Um, Usually what's going on here is when we are effortfully encoding, the goal or the hope is that you're effortfully encoding what I'm talking about right now. (coughs) And this means that you're learning novel or new information. Usually to actually, you know, successfully, effortfully encode information, you're going to need to rehearse this um, and repeat that information. And the reason why, if you're rehearsing something and you're actually effortfully encoding a piece of information, it is retained longer. And so retrieval is easy. When you're asked in the future to take out that information from your memory, you can do it successfully for the most part. Now, (coughs) when we think of different types of effortful encoding, there's one in particular that stands out and it's known as the spacing effect. We can also call it distributed practice. So you can use those terms interchangeably and what's going on with the spacing effect. And it kind of, that. The cool thing about memory in particular is that usually the definitions are fairly obvious, but again, I'm challenging you come up with those meaningful definitions on your own. Um, Why? You're going to be able to retain it and then retrieve it later on in the future. So with this spacing effect, generally what's going on is effortful encoding is stretched over a period of time and it has shown to be more effective meaning the longer time you spend effortfully encoding something or some piece of information, trying to put it into your memory, there is longer retention and studies do show this now the person associated with the spacing effect remember in ap psych people are incredibly important his name is herman ebbinghaus um, and he comes up with the forgetting curve um that is her herman ebbinghaus so it's important to you know clump those words together um and basically what's going on here with the forgetting uh, curve and what Ebbinghaus did in his studies was has had his subjects um, memorize nonsense words like calf, wid, sass, so on and so forth. And the longer time they spent practicing that list of nonsense words on day one, the less time was required to relearn those words on day two and it got less and less and less so even though you're spacing out or distributing your practice of rehearsing or effortfully encoding these nonsense words what he found was when you do distribute your practice not only do you retain this information it takes less time to actually review that information on future days. And in class I did show you that forgetting curve. It's important to associate Hermann Ebbinghaus with that forgetting curve and repeating and rehearsing or even distributing your encoding practice. <coughs> Some other related terms that will fall under the bubble of different types of effortful encoding include The serial position effect. What happens here is generally what happens is you end up recalling the first or earliest items and then the last and latest items in a list. For example, if you were told to go to the grocery store, what the serial position effect would tell you and what it tells us is that you're going to remember the first and last items Um, on on that grocery list that your mom gives you, more so than the ones in the middle. Now, another related word with effortful encoding is the primacy effect. Kind of speaks for itself, but just to reiterate, it's remembering the first or earlier items best on a list. So let's use that grocery store example. You go to the grocery store, your mom tells you verbally a long list of items. You're going to probably remember the earlier items on the list, which my guess would be in the produce section, most likely because that's the first area of the grocery store. Now, the last term that's associated with effortful encoding, (coughs) Is known as that recency effect. And that is, again, kind of speaks for itself that we are lucky here with the memory section of cognition. And what it is, is you're remembering the last or later items on that on that list. So my guess would be on a grocery list, it would be in like the frozen food section, potentially. Um, you'd remember those more so than the rest of it on that list. <coughs> now, Those are different types of encoding, but how do we encode? And we have two different ways of, you know, how we encode. And it's through shallow, but also deep processing. And when we process information, we can do this in three different ways. We can encode the meaning of information and that's called semantic encoding. We can visualize that information or we can mentally organize it in different groups and categories. And your notes are through mentally organizing the information that we use in this class. That's part of the reason why I give you the notes. Um, When we think of encoding its meaning, this is the thing that I was getting at at the beginning of class this week, but also at the beginning of this episode is, We when we encode things through its meaning and make meaning out of it that makes sense to us as an individual, as opposed to memorizing someone else's random definition, we retain it longer. Um, That really proves deep processing. So encoding its meaning, semantic encoding, is deep processing of information. we usually don't encode information literally which could also be word for word we as humans don't usually do that if we try to do it it's actually really really hard for us to retrieve that information in the future. Um, Instead, what is suggested and what we do tend to do is encode the meaning of information. And the meaning of information is known as semantic encoding. So the more we understand a particular piece of information or even a particular concept, the more meaningful that information is, it's easier to encode And then we have better retrieval or taking that information out in the future to use it again. Um, Then the next step is, oh, to get into a little bit of, you know, well, why, what influences semantic encoding schemas, our schemas or concepts of particular things greatly influence memories in the example that we used in class. I had you memorize a short story about boxing and christmas and then asked you well how did you memorize that information what pieces of info really stuck out to you and how did you make meaning out of it um and what i pulled out was well <coughs> for us you may have unless you're australian um thought of the boxing day as an actual boxing match where whereas if you are australian You would have pictured, you know, Boxing Day as either, um, well, originally, or it originated as in giving, like, gifts to people in poverty, but now is, like, a shopping day, the day after Christmas. Um, But you also could have remembered this story by thinking of the snow, you know, remembering Christmas morning. Whereas Australians may have thought of the heat, summer. Why? Because Christmas in December in Australia is in the summer. Um, The second way to encode or how to process or encode information is through visualizing it or even through images. These are through mental pictures. Um, It's easier to encode and process the images of something compared to words and concepts. Um, In other words, it's easier to remember or recall or retrieve later in the future images compared to abstract concepts. Um, Some examples here. So um, (coughs) if you were asked to visualize a moose compared to void, it's probably easier to visualize what a moose is in your mind compared to void um, when we think of you know a picture is worth a thousand words, that comes true when we think of how we actually encode information um, and in other words, you know, I also show pictures throughout presentations. It's not just a list of words. There's a big difference between being able to talk about something versus show a picture. We generally retain information better if we use visuals um, or pictures. And a good example that I brought up in class was, what do you think of when you think of World War II? Probably trenches. Trench foot, maybe. You know, fighting in the murky waters. Why? Well, your history teacher showed you a crap ton of those pictures that probably not only grossed you out, but really helped you visualize how these people fought in World War I. Um, Now, when we think of, well, what's the strongest way of encoding? Technically, semantic trumps them all. However, the really, really, really strong way of encoding something is both semantically and visually. Semantically, remember, is making meaning of a particular concept or piece of information from yourself. Like, how do you make it meaningful to you? as an individual. Not Merriam-Webster's definition, but your own definition. And I know we all roll our eyes when our teachers say, write something in your own words, but there's a reason why. It's so you're making meaning out of it, so you can retain it longer, and then take it out or retrieve it in the future. Um, So (coughs) when we encode things that are both semantically making meaning out of it, but also visually, um, that is the strongest way of deeply encoding something. Now, mental aids often use both visual and semantic encoding. I briefly mentioned mnemonic devices (coughs) um, and also method of loci. Now there's another one called the, the PEG word system that can be found in the reading, but also the AP review videos that I highly recommend that you watch because it'll go through those in detail. Remember, these podcasts are like a SparkNotes version. Now, the third way of ment- or encoding information and how we process you know the encoding process of it is organizing information in a particular way now the main way is chunking we chunk information all the time your teachers sometimes present information in a chunked manner and it's not a fancy word at all Um, but an example we're going back to the grocery store your mom asks you to pick up the following from the grocery store I listed a bunch of different things, um, I guess it's not really a bunch, nine different items from the store. Generally it's chunked by where are they found in the store, the produce aisle, the bread aisle, the dairy aisle, the sweets aisle, the water aisle, the frozen section aisle, so on and so forth. That is chunking, organizing information where you literally find it in the grocery store. Um, Chunking is also used with postal codes. Um, (coughs) In the U.S., we use five different numbers, um, where Canadian postal codes gets a little more um, complicated, which we don't need to know exactly the reason and rationale behind it, but we chunk that information differently. Um, Also, if you think about different mnemonics that we use, HOMES. Um, I don't know if you all know this for the different, um, great lakes, uh, Lake Huron, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, and, oh, what's the S one? Superior. And then Roy G. Biv is used for the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue is, I think, um, indigo is technically out, but we, I'm still putting it in. And then V for violet. Um, and if you were curious about the U.S. Postal Codes, the different numbers correspond to the different regions in the United States, and we showed you a in class, it's also in the presentation. Um, and another way of knowing really why it's so important of chunking information, and i asked you all, it, what's easier to memorize? A list of a bunch of different letters, or if the letters were not only spaced apart, but color-coded that's chunking, you know, putting that information into easily understandable ways. Um, It also goes back to, you know, semantic encoding. It's easier, you know, information is easier to memorize if it's given meaning. Um, Not only, you know, color coding it, but chunking it into different letters that we can recognize and recall in the future. Now, another way (coughs) is a hierarchy. And a hierarchy can be done in an outline or a flowchart. for the most part your notes are done in a um, uh, probably an outline type of way um, i also box it so i would kind of connect it to not only an outline but also chunking um, because it's easier to kind of group that information and i also color code a lot of things now overall though to kind of end encoding Which is best? We know that semantic is best because you as an individual are making meaning out of a particular piece of information or concept. It's easier to understand information if we give it meaning and we as an individual understand it. If not, we're memorizing nonsense, some random definition that your teacher gave you or Google gave you. That doesn't really make sense to you. Um, Now, generally, (laughs) <laughs> if we're just visually looking at something and trying to take it in, which I know some of you do, we have found that it's actually the worst if that's all you're doing, just looking at information. Um, acoustic, which is listening to me, is fairly low unless that information is presented uniquely, whether it's through rhymings um, or even to the tune of a song. Um, And I showed you all, and I'm not really sure if I'm yet going to do this in class, but singing the United States song alphabetically pretty quickly with the states. Um, The reason why I was able to remember it was it was presented to me acoustically. I'm hearing it. However, it's presented in a unique manner. Um, Now, when we think of... Encoding things and how are we able to remember it in the future? What we need to do in order to really deeply process slash encode that information, we need to rehearse it. Um, And we call this elaborative rehearsal. It's an actual method of encoding. And what we do is relate new information into information that's already in our memory. And in class, I called it our long-term memory. An example is the, the word homes for the Great Lakes. The word homes is a word that we already know. Um, so we're relating the new information, memorizing the Great Lakes, with a word that we are already kind of knowledgeable about. Um, this also elaborative rehearsal happens all the time with musical instruments um, and even with math, with building upon concepts. Um, but that elaborative rehearsal is really chunked within, you know, deeply processing and or deeply encoding that information. Um, and I'm going to take a pause here and then we'll wrap up memory. All right, for this next section, I am going to get into detail of the second stage of the information processing model of memory and focus on the storage of memories. Now, we're going to complicate things a bit. Um, there is a specific model that we do need to be very familiar with regarding the storage model of memory, and it's known as the atkinson shiffrin model of memory. Now, the big thing is not getting this mixed up with the information processing, Information processing model of memory is just the broad we encode, we then store, and then we can retrieve memories. The Atkinson-Schiffrin memory model's main focus is how do we put memories into storage? How does something that we encode get from the encoding stage into long-term memory? memory. So it's this storage process. It's really key that you're not getting this mixed up with the information processing model because College Board will expect that, you know, the difference. So the big thing with this storage model or also known as the Atkinson Schifrin model, there are three stages for storage. Um, So we start with memory that is sensory memory then goes into short-term memory and then can go into long-term memory memories don't automatically just poof go into our ltm or long-term memory so if we go through the first stage (coughs) of this storage model which is sensory memory the most basic definition is that it's this immediate initial recording of sensory information so it's that immediate storage of sensory info now it does it's very very fleeting so basically the decay is pretty quickly Um, it happens quickly sorry so we have two different types of sensory memories we have iconic or echoic um, and I'm pretty sure I'm saying that right I might get it a little wrong but Oh well, bear with me. When we think of iconic memory, I want you to think back to World History One, actually, when you learned about all the icons in the church. Um, So I want you to think iconic memory is visual memory, and it's very fleeting, meaning that it lasts about a half second, and then it's automatically replaced by the next image. (coughs) Iconic memory actually explains how motion pictures work Um, there's a stroboscopic effect that we didn't necessarily go into too much detail with perception but we did mention it with perception um, specifically like visual perception now, the second type of sensory memory is coic memory. Think echo here. and echo is dealing with sound. So when we think of a coic memory, it's sensory memory of auditory stimuli. And this one lasts a little longer. It's about three to four seconds until we move on to the next potentially, you know, auditory stimulus. And we take that in. Um, the big thing with sensory memory is it's very short. Decay is fast. The second stage uh, of the atkinson shiffrin model of storage is short-term memory. When we think of short-term memory, it's our active memory. And what happens with short-term memory is it holds a few items of information for a very brief amount of time. It's not as brief as sensory memory, but it's way more brief than long-term memory. When we think of uh, short-term memory, the rationale, you know, why, It's long enough to decide if this piece of information, if this concept is important enough for it to go into the storage of long-term memory. The key thing though here with short-term memory is that decay happens fairly fast, not as fast as sensory memory, but still pretty fast, unless we are effortfully encoding that information. So if you think back to the encoding, there are two types of encoding, automatic versus effortful automatic doesn't happen on that conscious level. So even if something that we're taking in through short-term memory is automatic, most likely it's not going to go into that long-term memory. So it's tricky to retrieve that or bring that up into our consciousness. Again, think back to the penny example, but also the Bernstein bears. Now, The the key thing here with short-term memory is that it lasts for about 3 to 10 seconds-ish with a 20-second maximum. Um, And when we think about the capacity of short-term memory, it's quite limited. Um, When we think of, okay, well, how much information, it's not limitless. Um, the limit does exist with short-term memory and the person associated with figuring out the capacity of, you know, how much, how many pieces of information, how many concepts can someone hold in their short-term memory? And the guy is named George Miller. He comes up with this magic number seven. Again, it's plus or minus a few. It's not always seven pieces of information, but the average kind of comes to be that, um, when we think about you know why why is this important in life, think back to zip codes. Um, <coughs> when we see zip codes in the United States, numbers are better than letters. Um, so when we looked at the Canadian postal codes, we were like, "Wait, what?" Um, that's tricky. The adult brain, we have you know an estimated storage of billions of bits of information. Um, But how much can we truly store permanently into our long-term memory? So that brings us into that last stage of the Atkinson-Schiffrin model of storage, and we come to long-term memory. Sorry. Um, Now, the key thing and the the annoying thing that I know a lot of you will be frustrated with is we don't know a lot about long-term memory. There's more that we don't know than we actually do know. Um, We aren't really sure that if everything we ever have encoded is actually stored in our brains. We don't know. Um, We also don't know if, you know, the memories are there and we just can't recall it. We don't have that answer. Um, We're not really sure exactly where memories are stored. I will get into the biological basis of storage in a moment and we have ideas, but we are not exactly sure. Um, (coughs) And then the last question. We're not really sure if memories actually decay or if we just lose the ability to access them. We'll talk about um, forgetting next week um, and we'll talk about things that make it tricky to actually retrieve it, um, like retrieval issues, but we, we don't really know exactly what's going on. What we do know, though, is that with long-term memory and long-term storage it has limitless capacity so in comparison to short-term memory where there is a limit of information long-term memory the limit doesn't exist um (coughs) when we break down long-term memory there are two main types implicit versus explicit, and it's very important that you know the difference and the, the different types of memories within these. It's tricky, I know. Now in class, we're practicing this, but it's going to take some repetition and rehearsal on your end. You're going to have to continuously um, effortfully encode this information because it's hard. It's a lot of info. So with this first type of long-term memory, which is known as implicit memory, we could also refer to it as persistent procedural. And yes, you do need to know both of those terms. I know. Now, when we think of implicit memory, the main skills that we focus on are motor skills and cognitive skills. So this could be riding. this could be riding our bike, um, eating even. Those are skills that we kind of implicitly have in our memory. <coughs> when we think of you know, conditioned learning, if you're, you know, that's also kind of clumped into a type of implicit memory. In a way, it's kind of automatic, but it still is in our long-term memory. Now, with implicit memory, you're doing these actions, these motor skills, these cognitive skills without conscious recall. Um, And the areas of the brain that we're pretty sure are associated with implicit memory are our cerebellum and basal ganglia. Now, we didn't really go into detail about the basal ganglia in our bio unit. Um, However, it is another part of the brain that we believe is associated with implicit memory. The other type of long-term memory is explicit memory, and this can also be referred to as declarative memory. You do need to know those two different words. When we think of the broad definition of explicit memory, I want you to think of facts, but also experiences. When we are retrieving this memory from our long-term memory, it's generally with conscious recall, Um, and the main part of the brain associated with explicit memories um, will be the hippocampus. That's what we are pretty sure about. Now to complicate things more. I know um, there are two different types of explicit memories. Think back to the broad definition. It's dealing with facts and experiences because because that encompasses a broad number of possibilities. We've broken those down into two types. So when we think of a semantic memory, which I know we talked about semantic encoding there's a difference there. Semantic encoding is making meaning out of particular pieces of information. Semantic long-term memory is dealing with facts, information. So that would be (coughs) the 50 states, um, your times tables, um, or multiplication tables. um, What else? Capital cities, if you're aware of that. um, Other pieces of information. The other type of explicit memory is episodic. Um, When we think of episodic memory, you can also refer to it as episodic, but for some reason, episodic works better with me. Uh, We're thinking of personal experiences. Think of like a snapshot or an episode from your life or someone else's life. That could be your long-term memory of your 10th birthday party. Um, your 18th birthday party, for those of you who have turned 18 and so on and so forth, Um, you getting a job, um, other things like that, just episodes or personal experiences from your life. Now, the last type of when we think of storage and long-term memory is working memory, and it kind of takes this middle ground between Um, new information that you're taking in, and also pulling out long-term memory. It's memory that you're currently working with. When we think of it, we're thinking active processing. So we are integrating new info, like reading a recipe of baking chocolate chip cookies, and then also pulling out information that's already in long-term memory. We use our working memory constantly. I'm doing it all the time. I'm thinking back to, okay, what do I remember from when I taught this a year ago, but then what are the intricacies and trickiness of teaching um, AP Psych in a distance learning model, and so on and so forth. So it's that working memory. We're all using it for the most part, um, like all the time. So An example of baking cookies, you're using information from your long-term memory, for example, where the flour is stored, where the vanilla is stored, where the chocolate chips are, um, where the butter is, so on and so forth, um, with new information. So let's say you're using a new recipe that you aren't really familiar with. um, That would be that, you know, current working memory, that incoming um, short-term memory almost. (coughs) All right. What I'm going to get into very quickly will be the biological aspects of long term memory. Now, in class, I recommended that you watch a video that I recorded walking through this slide, um, these slides. We didn't talk about it in class just for the time's sake, but I mean, you'll be you'll be OK. For the most part, this is going to be a review of biology, which is important. Now, when we think about storage of memories and the biological aspect, When we think of this overall unit cognition, for the most part, we're explaining this from the cognitive perspective. However, for this brief amount of time, I'm going to use the biological perspective combined with that cognitive approach or perspective to explain what we know about storing memories. Remember, in psychology, it's never really an all or none with these perspectives that we use. In 2021, wow, I almost said 2020, in 2021, current day, modern day, we're using an amalgam of all of these perspectives that we learned from our very first unit. So when we think of biology and the storage of memories what's happening is information is coming in enters our cerebral cortex through our senses the thalamus does its job here except for smell Um, where that information goes really depends on the type of information An example is implicit memories are mainly stored in the cerebellum and basal ganglia, whereas explicit memories are mostly stored in the hippocampus. Um, And we'll bring in a new type of memory, which I mentioned a while ago, um, but we'll also bring in other parts of the brain. When we form memories, the neural synapses change. Um, There's also an increase in neurotransmitter amounts, and those neural connections strengthen when those memories are like cemented or, you know, stored in our long-term memory. Regarding the synaptic changes, so that synapse is, you know, that area between two different neurons, so the axon buttons of one neuron and then the dendrites of the receiving neuron. There's a change in those connections and that connection actually strengthens as we gain and cement or form those solid long-term memories. What we refer to the strengthening as is long-term potentiation. It's a tongue twister. Sometimes you'll see it referenced as LTP, Um, not LTM but LTP long-term potentiation and it strengthens those connections between the neurons and also in turn strengthens the firing potential it takes less um, of that inhibitory um, impulse sorry for action potential to happen in that receiving neuron Um, when we think of you know why do we care about LTP it's a neurological or biological basis for not only learning, but remembering associations and having memories. So we're not just looking at it from this cognitive perspective. It's important to be aware of this biological perspective as well. Um, Now, with LTP or long-term potentiation, experiments have shown that blocking LTP or blocking that ability of forming those synapses forming those connections between the neurons can disrupt learning Um, increasing that time and amount of time that you're you know forming those synapses actually increases learning that part really explains that spacing effect of encoding but it's also referred to as distributed practice if you study a little bit each day it not only takes less and less time for you to retrieve or recall that info in the following days, but the retrieval process strengthens. Um, And in turn, when we think of it from it from that um, biological aspect, that means that long term potentiation has happened. The strengthening of those neurons in those particular areas of the brain for that particular memory, it strengthens. Um, Studies have shown that with long term potentiation and disrupting the brain, either through electrical shocks or even an intense head injury like a concussion, before long term potentiation happens, it doesn't disrupt existing long term memories. However, it does disrupt short-term memory. So that kind of fleeting memory that the decay is really fast. Let's say you had that concussion. You're most likely not going to remember the almost 20 seconds preceding the um, concussion or head injury because long-term potentiation had been disrupted. I'm... I'm going to get into a, more, a little bit more about biology and the storage of memories. When we think of hormones, we talked about hormones with the endocrine system back in our bio unit. Seems like a while um, ago because it was. But we do produce certain hormones when we're excited, um, but also when we're stressed. And those hormones can boost memory. Luckily, we don't need to know those particular types of hormones at the moment. Um, But what hormones have shown us is that emotionally charged events or events and experiences surrounding a bunch of emotion are generally remembered better. Now, remember, we're not just this recording of memories. We're reconstructing these memories. but we do recall these memories very vividly. We know what happened. So, in turn, the more emotion, the more memory. The less emotion, the less memory. Um, you could uh, associate a flash, and these are known as flashbulb memories, September 11th for those, for people who were alive during that time. And I would say around five or older. Um, maybe, you know. What was going on when schools shut down? What happened when Trump was president in 2016? What about when um, other things going on in politics, other things going on in your life, when you got accepted to college or even denied from college? Those will be and they'll be cemented in your mind and in your long-term memory as flashbulb memories. Now, parts of the brain (laughs) associated with the storage of long-term memories are quite important. When we think of the hippocampus, it's mainly with explicit memories, both semantic but also episodic. Remember, semantic and episodic memories are two types of explicit um, or declarative memories. When we think of the left hemisphere of the hippocampus, it's associated with verbal information, and the right side of the hippocampus is mostly associated with visual information, but also locations of particular things. The cerebellum is mainly associated with implicit memories, think conditioning here, Um, and then the amygdala is associated with emotional memories. So we'll put in flashbulb memories with that amygdala. One last thing with the biological aspect of storage is this term known as infantile amnesia. The big question is, why don't we remember everything that happened to us from the moment we were born? We generally don't know what happens from the moment we're born until around two and a half, three years old. Um, Unless, of course, your parents have told you time and time again, or your guardians have told you, you know, this is what happened on your first birthday party or your second birthday party and so on and so forth. The key thing with infantile amnesia though is questioning why do we remember certain things such as implicit skills, like potentially, you know, eating, Um, You know, using, I don't know, um, potentially even riding a bike, um, other random skills that we have learned, um, even talking when we're younger. And the reason why is our cerebellum has been developed a lot of these skills for implicit memories are tacked into that cerebellum that's where they're stored we don't know where every single piece of information is but we do have a pretty good idea that the cerebellum is really associated with where implicit memories are however we aren't necessarily recalling from ourselves particular facts and experiences why Those are explicit memories. And we know that the area of the brain where explicit memories are mainly stored is the hippocampus. And in turn, that hippocampus has not been fully developed at that moment when we're really young. Um, And so we're not encoding that particular information, which is pretty cool. All right, I'm gonna take a pause right now and then we'll get into um, the last bit of memory for this week. All right. So for this last section of memory for this week, we're going to get into um, retrieval. And if you remember, retrieval is that last part of the information processing model of memory, which is really important to know. Um, So when we think of the retrieval process, it's all about our memory is a series of associations Um, we've made associations with particular events or concepts with other particular events and concepts and in order to retrieve encoded and then stored information we have to have a way to access it to basically pull it out and what we found with the retrieval process is that we humans need to associate information being retrieved with something else. And this is a big idea behind mnemonics, like using a word that we know, for example, the word homes, um, in order to remember <coughs> particular um, The Great Lakes um, or even Roy G. Biv or the planets with my very earnest mother, blah, 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 blah. I forget the rest off the top of my head. Um, It's tricky if we don't have any of those associations. So I posed the question in class, you know, does anyone know what day of the week was September 1st, 2018? Unless you've already made those associations, potentially there was a flashbulb memory that happened to you that day. Most of us don't know and aren't able to retrieve that piece of information for the day of the week because we haven't formed those associations um, and we aren't really primed to pull out that info. So when we think of the retrieval process, I use the analogy, retrieving information is very similar to looking for something in a file. And you can even think of like a Google file here. It doesn't have to be a physical file cabinet. Um, Usually there are many different ways to retrieve that information. The more ways to retrieve that file, the more associations you are able to make, which means it is easier to retrieve. So I used another example in class of Santa Claus. That retrieval of Santa Claus could be placed in the Christmas file. It could be placed in the fat person file. The people who dress in red file, yikes. The people who don't really exist file. And lastly, the people who travel by reindeer file. There are many associations that we have kind of associated Santa Claus with. So it makes it easier to retrieve that info in the future remember the more associations we can make the better um now then we're going to get into um i'm sorry i'm like losing my thought process different types of retrievals and there are two types recall and recognition they're important to know (coughs) The definition of recall regarding retrieval is that ability to retrieve information that's not in conscious memory. Some examples of recall tests or assessments would be free response questions, essays, DBQs, SAQs, essay fill in the blank questions. What's happening with a recall question is that generally there are pretty there's a few number of um, retrieval cues. And remember, those retrieval cues prime our association. They wake us up. And so it's harder. Recall requires a lot of info that has been effortfully encoded. And you got to know this info. Um, There aren't a lot of clues in a recall type question for the most part. Now, the opposite end of retrieval is recognition. This is that ability to identify items that are previously learned. Um, So (coughs) the key word here is identify. A great example would be multiple choice questions. That answer is already there. You just have to identify what the correct answer is. Generally, with recognition tests, like multiple choice questions, there are more retrieval cues there, or even context clues, if you look at it from like an English perspective, and those retrieval cues prime us to make the right answer, or come up with the right answer, or pick the right answer. They prime and awaken our associations. Generally, with retrieval, we do remember more than we can recall, which makes sense because recalling something is quite tricky. Um, In other words, we can identify information in memory more so than pulling that information from memory. So one thing that I've always told my students in the past was, if you can talk through something and teach the information, you know it. If you're just reading info and essentially trying to memorize it, you don't know it as well as you could with actually teaching the information. If you're able to talk through something, recall is happening. Um, Now back to retrieval cues. These retrieval cues kind of remind us, um, okay, what is this piece of information associated with? What file am I supposed to look for? in my memory. Um, And in other words, retrieval cues provide those reminders of info we otherwise couldn't recall. In class, we used a yearbook photo exercise where I just initially showed you someone's face and then asked you, okay, who is it? And then the next question, I showed you multiple people's faces and then I gave you options like, okay, who is it? So on and so forth. And we found that it's easier to recognize something as opposed to recall. (coughs) Now, to get into a little more detail about retrieval cues, because we are responsible to know the different types of retrieval, memory, our memory, long-term memory, is held in our storage by a web of associations. So many different files that we can kind of look in to retrieve and then pull out that info. In order to retrieve a particular piece of information or memory, we need to identify what strand that leads to it. This is known as priming. In other words, when we're primed to say something, it's like that waking of associations. Generally with priming, it's on that subconscious level, so not quite unconscious, but subconscious. We practiced the priming exercise when I listed a bunch of words and then had you recall, okay, what did we say? A lot of you accidentally wrote sleep when sleep wasn't a word. However, there were a lot of clues in those words that led you to misidentify the word sleep and you were primed to say that. Another example, I showed you a bunch of pictures of bunnies or rabbits. And seeing those pictures of the rabbits could have primed you for the following associations. Mammals, animals, different names for a bunny, like a rabbit, a bunny, a hare, a cottontail even, and things associated with rabbits. Long ears, fuzzy, Easter, so on and so forth, but also famous rabbits. Bugs Bunny, Roger Rabbit, can't think of anything else off the top of my head. And that has led you to make those associations. So potentially, if I had asked you to spell the word hair, I'm gonna say it, you know, how I spelled it, H-A-I-R, that association with the picture has already been primed of the rabbit. So many people could actually in turn spell the word hair as H-A-R-E in reference to a rabbit instead of the word hair, H-A-I-R. Why? The reason why is because we, of that association between the picture and that word hair, has been primed. Um, tch tch. Sorry. Sorry. The last thing that I'm going to get into are retrieval cues. So similar with priming, there are different cues that can help us retrieve some pieces of information. And these are cues that aid our recall of info and that it's generally happening spontaneously. And retrieval cues help our recall of info. Um, examples of simple retrieval cues using words, Roy G. Biv, or Holmes those words could be enough to prime and awaken your associations that lead you to remember the colors of the rainbow or even the Great Lakes. So I didn't give you those examples of words, events, and pictures, but a lot of these prime associations, like the picture of the trenches, prime your association to think of World War I. Um other things. I'm trying to think of other things off the top of my head, but it's really hard right now. Um, But we practiced coming up with these in class. (coughs) Another type of retrieval cue would be context effects. What's happening with context effects is that it's being in the same context as when memory was initially encoded can activate your memory. So it's beneficial to, and I know we don't have that ability right now, but to take the SAT at your school. Why? Well, we practiced and we did SAT practices in school. Uh, Same thing happens with me. For me, if I try and do my work in a different area in my apartment, I'm not really able to do it. Part of it is because of context effects. Now, another type of retrieval cue is state-dependent memory. What's happening here is something learned in one state, whether we're happy, sad, angry, so on and so forth, is more easily recalled when we're in that state again. Um, So what's happening here. And we we actually mentioned state dependent memory with alcohol. When we learned about alcohol, something done while intoxicated, we may not necessarily remember when we're sober. But when we return back to that intoxicated state, we can recall that info. And that is a specific type of retrieval cue, which is state dependent memory. The cue is that state that you were in. Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you intoxicated? Are you angry? so on and so forth. Mood-congruent memory, on the other hand, that mood influences what we remember. So that tendency to recall those experiences are consistent with one's current mood emotions become retrieval cues so when we're sad we spiral sometimes mood congruent cues tell us that and we then remember all the sad events that happened in our lives I'm sure a lot of you have those playlists like happy playlist sad playlist angry playlist on Spotify or Apple music or whatever you use listening to those pieces of music can actually cue us to then recalling everything in our life that has made us sad or everything in our life that makes us excited or angry or focused or even. um, And all of that, which is kind of cool. The last type of retrieval cue is mood dependent. Now, this type of cue is related to perception and our present mood affects how we recall a particular memory, or even how events are remembered. Basically, mood colors our memory. An example, if we are in a bad mood, someone asks about our trip to Disneyland, we're going to say every single bad thing that happened, versus, like, it was hot, it was humid, It was crowded. The food wasn't good. My food was cold when I ate it. There were lines everywhere. The rides weren't fun. All those bad memories potentially associated with your trip versus let's say you were in a happy mood. Someone asked you about that trip to Disneyland. You then said, oh, It was wonderful. Yeah, the lines were long, but I had a wonderful time with my family. The food was okay, but I had some great experiences with other restaurants. Or some rides were not so great, but for the most part, the rides were awesome. And all of that. Um, So that's the mood-dependent memory. My recommendation, if you're feeling uneasy about state-dependent, mood-congruent, and mood-dependent, is to... Effortfully encode it. Rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Come up with examples that make sense to you. Don't only use my examples because you're memorizing it. Try and come up with something where you can, let's use a word here, semantically encode this information. Make meaning out of these tricky terms. These are hard. Um, It's going to take elaborative rehearsal and practice. And if you think of that forgetting curve with Hermann Ebbinghaus, the more we repeat and review something that we're shaky on, the better retrieval will be in the future. All right. This was a pretty intense um, episode, but I appreciate y'all listening. Um, And that's that for memory for now.